With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, and I hope you are, I wanted to mention our Patreon because that is the best thing that you can do to support the show if you are so inclined. Patrons get access to every podcast a week early without any of the ads. There's also members-only channels in the Discord that I am super active in. I do Q&As, I do some giveaways, and for everyone who has asked, there's also a way to have me review your music or artwork or anything else that you would like to get my eyes or ears on. Every month, I do a call for submissions on Patreon. You post your work in the comments, and then I will review it live on Twitch and then post them to YouTube for everybody on Patreon as well. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, there's a link to that in the show notes for this podcast. So uh, we've been working together for uh, about eight years now, starting back in 2013 when uh, Al and I worked together. Uh, well, we worked on stuff before that, actually, but like the first real thing we did together was 2013 when we did a class for my old company, Creative Live. The first kind of live streaming music education event in the way that everybody does them now or well not everyone but much more common now but we were, we were kind of the first to do that sort of thing and then uh, i did a bunch of other like 70 or so other classes but ale was the one person i worked with uh, consistently throughout those i think we did five or six classes together something like that maybe more uh, which i'm still proud of and now we work together on urm academy and riff hard uh, any of you guys who are into production have probably seen Nail the Mix. That's the kind of main thing that I guess most people would know. That's our company where uh, every month we have a different producer come on to uh, to mix an album by a new band every month. You get the live, you get the multi-tracks from it. And then at the end of the month, the producer shows how they do it. Uh, and you can kind of compare your work to theirs. We've had bands on like Fall Out Boy and Bring the Horizon and Gojira, Meshuggah, Periphery, Opeth. Uh, Lamb of God, Suicide Silence, like tons and tons of other bands. Uh, Ale is the person who has made all of those artists happen. Uh, he's very good at making deals in addition to being a great musician. And now we have a new thing called RiffHard.com, which is an online school for metal guitarists, which we do with John Brown from Monuments. So all of that is to say that if you're a musician of any kind and you want to know how to get better at playing, or if you're a producer... Uh, or even if you're just a fan who wants to learn how to listen to music better, Ale is the person you should be listening to. Uh, I would credit him with teaching me probably the majority of what I know about music from like a songwriting and production perspective. Any of the, if you think any of my feedback on uh, the Patreon reviews is good or anything like that, it's only because of things that he has taught me. So that is why you should care what he has to say. And now we can officially start the interview. So Ale. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us tonight, and uh, hopefully I embarrassed you with my glowing introduction. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that introduction. I'm actually amazed by how much detail. You... I could have gone on much longer, but that would be that would, that would be awkward for everybody. 
<laughs> I have no idea what you played. I couldn't hear it, but uh, you played said Avalanche of Worms and Subterfuge. Okay. Yeah, that, I got firsthand Carpal Tunnel uh, on those, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. what I wanted to talk about tonight, I mean, like I said, I talk to you more than anybody other than Lynn, and sometimes I even talk to you more than her. I'm uh, sorry. Some days. <laughs> so, I've, you know, we could talk about anything forever, but what I wanted to focus on tonight, because I know we've got a lot of musicians who are watching and listening, uh, is just kind of talk about the craft of music, uh, how to be a better player, better producer, better songwriter, because I don't know, we don't really talk about that that much uh, anymore. We talk about business stuff, but you have just a wealth of knowledge there. So I kind of want to talk about that. Sure. Always happy to talk about that. I actually think that getting better at music is pretty much the same exact thing as getting better at a sport or like you do getting better at MMA fighting, anything like that, that requires both a technical mastery over something and also mental game. I think it's not just like doing a physical thing or just like doing a mental thing. So I think anybody who's trying to actually make it their focus needs to take uh, both of those things into consideration. This yeah. is the first thing that came to mind about getting better at music. The one thing I would say that really defines your approach to me, which I think people really need to hear, is the concept of never cutting corners. Can yeah. you talk about that a little bit and why that's such an important thing for musicians and producers to understand? Well, uh, at the end of the day, you're trying to create something that doesn't exist yet. It's some idea that you have in your head or that you share with somebody else and there's really no roadmap for it besides your own standards you know if you're writing a song even though the rest of the world hears it in a pre you know they hear it as it is to you it's all question marks and uh if you're not careful you can end up selling yourself short or undershooting whatever the target is and uh in order to not do that, I think that you just need to always keep an eye on making it as good as you possibly can. It sounds super obvious, but it's a lot harder when you actually get down to it. But if you're not doing that, I guarantee you that somebody else who's also, you know, trying to get good at guitar or writing songs is doing that. Uh, and basically they're going to win the race. So I've always seen it as doing what somebody else won't do or trying to do more than what somebody else will do, which might not be the healthiest approach, but I've always kind of seen it like that. My dad got, uh, he basically drilled into my head that music and sports are super, super similar in on the competition side, which I think is not what a lot of artists want to hear. Right. Because they like to think that it's all about art and yeah. all this beautiful stuff. But I've noticed that, people who don't take that side into consideration tend to fall behind because it's, it's super easy to go down rabbit holes or not have the right kind of focus. Uh, there was an example of that that came up in a conversation the other day. I, I won't say who you were working with because we haven't announced it yet, but a guitarist that we're going to be working with next month who God, he's so good is ridiculous. Talk about his practice regimen as an example of somebody who won't cut corners. So he reminded me a lot of the drummer, Alex Rudinger, who I think is 
one of the most gifted and able drummers in pretty much metal history. You could say that, I think Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's weird to say that about people that are, you know, our contemporaries or whatever, but he's like, Almost 20 years younger. He's about, yeah, he's like, I mean, contemporaries working wise. I was just thinking, uh, I saw him like a kid when I first met him. But the thing that I remember about him in the studio was, you know, we'd be tracking these insane tech metal, death metal albums. And uh, most of his drum parts would be first take, second take, or third take with like almost no edits needed. And he would just, he would nail this shit. And then while we were comping a take or listening back, he'd just be practicing in the other room. And however long we needed uh, between takes is however long he'd practice. And then after the session, which, you know, it'd be like eight hours or 10 hours, he'd practice for another two hours before the session. He'd practice for an hour. It's just this nonstop stream of playing. And so people think that his ability is, godlike or inhuman but i think it's it's just an example of what happens when someone's super talented and super obsessive focuses their energy and uh this guitar player had a similar thing uh when we were filming him well in between when we were filming him he was constantly playing we would do like eight ten hour filming days where he's playing really taxing complicated both physically and mentally uh, stuff that's just not easy. And then he'd go back to the hotel and practice for an hour or two. And I know that he would practice for about 90 minutes before the the shoot as well. And uh, I remember when he was getting ready, he was telling me about his practice regimen and just re- sounded like an athlete. It's just bedtime, uh, wake up time, meal time, exact amount of minutes on the instrument, all of it just reminded me of an athlete. What about in the studio? Cause I actually, I forgot to mention the thing that probably a lot of people know you for is as a uh, producer, mixer, engineer, whatever you worked with lots and lots of, you know, big metal bands that people know, like job for a cowboy and monuments and white chapel and a bunch of other bands I'm forgetting, but uh, talk about in the studio, what that means, because that was really eye opening for me to, to discover what I thought was pretty good was like shit tier by your standards. <laughs> Can you talk about what that looks like in the studio to not cut corners? It looks like a, a lot of frustrated people, basically. Um, you know that feeling when you've been working really, really hard at something and you push past the point where you thought it was your limit, but you actually had like four hours of productivity left yeah. in you. And that feeling you get after that, like the actual exhaustion yeah. where you don't have the emotional ability to just be cool or be present or anything. Just that for about six weeks straight. Um, basic, basically, uh, you know, it's gone well when there's literally nothing else that anybody can possibly give to it. And that's really, really different than say like a local band session mm-hmm. or something where they're, is nothing against them, but they're looking at it like weekend warriors or by the clock or thinking that something is good enough when usually it's not. I mean, that's why you need a producer, right? Same reason Mm -hmm. you need a coach is you need a third person perspective on what's good enough. And uh, 
the I guess the dissonance between what's actually good enough and what you think is good enough can cause uh, can cause a lot of tension and a lot of frustration. So it's a it's a high energy, high uh, frustration, high output kind of environment that I don't think is uh, I don't think most people are suited for it, honestly. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people in this, you know, I'm speaking specifically about music, but this applies to any kind of creative field. There's a lot of people who I think uh, would tell you that they want to be held to a high standard and would tell you that they want to be pushed because, you know, they want to achieve excellence. But then when somebody actually pushes them and they are actually held to that high standard, they get pissed off and they break mentally. Have, yeah. Have you, I mean, I guess you don't really work that way. I don't think you're very good at punishing yourself, but what would your advice be for someone who's in that moment where they're feeling that frustration and they just want to throw their guitar, guitar down and say, fuck you, I'm out of here. What's your advice for that person in that moment? Chill the fuck out. <laughs> Basically. Um, I mean, it totally depends, right? Cause everybody is different. There's some people who, maybe the best thing would be for them to go take a walk, come back in 15 minutes and do it. And then some people, they're just being bitches. You need to push them yep. and they'll get over it. And uh, within five minutes, they'll forget that they were frustrated. But I think actually it's the producer's job to understand who they're working with and what kind of person they are and then tailor the approach to that. Because uh, if actually, if you take the one size fits all approach, that's going to lead to people actually breaking or not wanting to put up with your shit. So I really think that it varies. A good producer will vary the approach totally on who they're working with. Right. I remember uh, the one of the first times that we were, I don't remember what it was. It was at Audio Hammer, but uh, I, uh, I was like, here, well, let me play something and you tell me what I'm doing wrong. And you were like, I played something and you were like, well, did you mean to hit all those other strings? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, uh, no. Okay. Like, and I wasn't mad. I just, I legitimately, I guess what I'm getting at is like, I think a lot of people, a lot of musicians, artists in general believe that they are a lot better than they actually are. And that's a tough thing to deal with, to be confronted with the fact that like, actually you're like five notches worse than you believe you are. Because they've they never don't been held know. to that standard. How would they know? Too right. that's that's the thing. Uh, I've because compared heard, to the other people in local bands, they're probably great. Probably, but compared to the best, they suck. Yeah, I remember when uh, my dad came to see my local band when I was in high school. We just finished playing a pretty good show. I think we brought like a hundred people or something. And like, Ale, it is not very good. Yeah. No, yeah, I was like, didn't you think we were good? And he's like, it's not very good. <laughs> and uh it's like but we're better than the other bands and uh he's like who cares about the other bands right they're terrible right doesn't mean shit basically how would people know unless you show them i mean some people you know like those the genius types who are actually super 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 rare some of them will just have this uh inner thing where they just know you shouldn't count on that or expect that and definitely don't think that that's you. I think yeah. that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Most people just won't know unless somebody shows them. Yeah. And that's why, I, th I mean, I guess to, uh, to toot our own horn, that's why I think one of the many reasons why I think Nail the Mix and Riff Hard are so great is because there was no way to know 
before we came along. So for anybody who's listening that's not familiar, like if you sign up for nailthemix.com this month, you will get the actual raw multi-tracks to a song by Monuments. And John Brown is one of the best fucking guitarists in metal and his tracks are unreal. And like, if you want an example of what the highest standard looks like for a guitarist, he would be a perfect, perfect example of that. And now you can just go sign up to nailthemix.com right now for a dollar and you can see that. But 10 years ago, there was no way to get your hands on raw multi-tracks like that. And so you, you couldn't know really whether you were good. Like there's no way to directly apples to apples compare yourself to the best. But now because of us and because of YouTube and lots of other things, you can compare yourself to the best. So I don't think that's an excuse anymore. I think now people, it's just ego. They don't want to admit that they aren't as good as the people that they look up to. It's all subjective, man. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> no, I know. I definitely don't think it is. Either, <laughs> you're either fucking on the beat or you're not. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely think that back 10 years ago, there was a little bit more of an excuse. You're absolutely right. But I mean, how many multi-tracks have we put up now from amazing bands over a hundred? Yeah. Like there's, there's no reason for why, you know, if you love architects, which I know a lot of people do and you want to sound like them, you can check out yep. what they sound like without anybody else's studio magic. And you, if you do get that session, you realize their guitar playing is fucking unbelievable yep. and they sound great as they are, yep. no matter what. Uh, and that's part of that's part of the whole thing. I think that there's this weird misconception that a lot of musicians have about what they're hearing coming, you know, through their speakers in their room when they're playing or some idea ver between, I guess there's this like gap between what they're hearing on an album uh, or a single or whatever, something finished versus what they're hearing actually emanating from their speakers. Right. Uh, and they think that, I don't know. I feel like they don't quite see the gap as glare. Like they don't see right. it as glaring as it really actually is. They're like, I'm not Either, quite as yeah. good as Dimebag, but I'm pretty close. Pretty close. Like, <laughs> no, you're yeah. not fucking even on the same fucking planet because yeah, nobody with, is. And with the right mixer. Right. No, the best yeah. mixer in the world is not going to me make me sound even 1% as good as him. No, de definitely not. It's uh, it's really, really amazing when you've worked with enough great musicians and then heard the end product and you start to recognize that what it sounds like is what they actually sound like. Yes. It's exactly. really weird. Like Fluff had, when I went to his house last time, he actually had one of John Petrucci's guitars. And I, I don't <laughs> know how he sound had like it. him. Yeah. I don't know how or why, but whatever he had one. He's like, Oh, it's John's guitar. I was like, all right. And I played it. And guess what? I didn't sound like John Petrucci. Strange. I know. Bizarre. Wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected that one. <laughs> right. Uh, I didn't approve of the guitar, by the way. It's too small for John. It's uh, I, I don't like those guitars. They're too was small it, and round. It's one of those Ernie Ball, you know, whatever they are. Yeah. The tone was off. Yeah. No, I just don't like the way it looks. I just yeah. don't approve of it. Was it the one, like the really famous one with like, I don't know. I don't remember. I think it was yellow and remember. blue and I red. Don't remember. And but in any case, yeah. So I think that's, you know, ego to me is the biggest obstacle 
of most musicians. Um, and, and I also want to talk about speaking of subjective things that aren't subjective songwriting. Let's talk about that because almost everything that I know about songwriting, I learned from you. And I think it has served me well as a, a critic, if you want to use that word. Songwriting is one of those things that people think is subjective. And to some extent it is, but a lot of it's not, you know, the, I think it's a cop out for people to, to say like, if, if, if somebody with a uh, good ear gives some criticism that says the song lacks dynamics or there's no hook or, you know, this melody is weak or whatever, it's a cop out. They're like, well, that's not what I was going for. And so to some extent, that might be true, but I think songwriting is more objective than people think it is. Can you talk a little bit about that, whether you agree or disagree? I agree. I think that um, it's hard to put a finger on, which is why it's easy to fall into thinking it's subjective. And yeah, I guess technically you could say it is subjective because it comes down to people's tastes, but there's enough in common between songs that do really, really well, just like there's a lot in common between movies that tend to do really, really well, that it's not that there's a formula, but there's characteristics that fundamental principles. Yeah. That, I mean, sometimes there's rule breakers, but, and everyone wants to think they're the rule breaker. Guess what? You're not. Yeah. See, that's the, that's the, the ego part. Yeah. And also that that's the part that like, I guess, subjectivity can come into uh, you know, when you hear like an eight minute long song, that's a massive hit or that has no real structure to it yeah. or an, a weird structure and that happens. But uh, since there's no way to predict that right. and it's totally, it's a totally odd outlier type of thing. I think it's kind of dumb. It's kind of dumb. If you want to, if you want to. To base your decisions a, off the fucking yeah, freak outlier really, versus. The really, really dumb. 400 fucking thousand yeah. other songs that made it to, you know, the top 10 that all share the following things in common. But it's just a weird, it's that arrogance of so many musicians that they think they don't have to do things the way everyone else does. Like, it's okay for me to not change my strings. It's okay for me <laughs> to not have a hook. It's like. Who do you think you are? It's so odd. Remember, there was this uh, there was this local band once. Uh, they mm-hmm. they rented my studio out with like an outside producer to do some sort of a film shoot. Uh, you've been you were there. It was you know like a really nice looking drum room. Yeah, and they wanted to do some quote unquote unplugged thing with a bunch of acoustic guitars, and uh, their vocals were so horribly out of tune or have they had like harmonized vocals. And I remember walking through the room at some point where they were talking to each other Your and glasses like, Alice, yeah. <laughs> Alice and Chains unplugged was out of tune. So it's fine. Oh, okay. You're, oh, you're Lance Staley. Fine. I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, totally not fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, they told themselves that and I've heard that sort of thing. You know, what's weird though about the ego thing is it's both the worst thing and the most important thing. Yeah. Right. Because Which it was okay hard. when Lane Staley did it. Yeah, it was. And uh, you need enough ego to have the balls to yep. put yourself out there. Otherwise you just become yeah. one of these like boring soulless Berkeley people that follows all the rules and has no ideas. Yeah. It's, it's really, really tough because when it works out and you do great things, 
you get praised for it. But then when uh, you're hard headed with a stupid idea and you sound like shit, then everyone thinks you're an egomaniac. So how do you know which group you're in? You don't till the, till, till the public decides, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's why you need a good producer. That's, yep. that's where the outsiders but I think you made such a good point is when the public decides whoever that audience is. And, you know, yeah. obviously when you put out your guitar album, you didn't expect that to be able to number one hit. Like, you know, that only guitar nerds are going to like that. So you go into it with that understanding, but that's the part that's the real disconnect for me is like when people like the thing you always hear from people like, well, I know my music's good. I just need more exposure. Like, well, what feedback do you have that your music is good? None. And- what kind of exposure the exposure exposure is already built into the way that music gets out there. If it's good enough, it'll expose itself. You will at least get some inkling that it's good. You know, if you get two DMS a day from people you don't know saying that your music is great, you're onto something. Yeah. And of course there's a few things that'll fly under the radar that, by luck of the draw, like some people will, will get that shitty, uh, luck or whatever we'll do. We'll make music that if it was presented in the right context to the right crowd would do well. But since you can't predict that it's counterproductive to worry about it. And also generally when people think their music's great and they don't do well, they suck. Yes. Generally. Again, it's it's Occam's razor. Are you yep. the one in a million who is like this underappreciated genius who just needs someone to shine the light on them and then they'll explode? Or Probably not. Or is it more likely that maybe your music isn't as good as you think it is? Probably I know when the I was, latter. I know when I was making videos that I thought were great and I was frustrated that people didn't like them as much as they should, I went back years later and watched them and I was like, yeah, that video is not very good and I wonder people didn't like it. Your videos have come a long way, by the way. They have. And, you know, I wasn't afraid to suck for a while. I knew that I needed to improve. But again, to your point earlier, in my mind, the gap was not nearly as big as it was in reality. Like, I thought I sucked a little, but in reality, I sucked a lot. On the other hand, if I realized how bad I sucked, I might have just gotten discouraged and quit. So it is tough to manage that ego of like, sometimes it helps you, sometimes it hurts you. What helped you ignore the I guess the feeling of wanting to quit, but then also ignore the feeling of maybe I'm delusional. Well, I've been making stuff, you know, in one form or another for a very long time. So I sort of understand that it's part of the process that there's going to be a part of this where you work really hard on stuff that nobody likes. And in hindsight, you look back and realize it sucks. Like, I just know that that's part of the process. So I accept it. You know what I mean? Just like, Anything, any craft that you want to get better at, there's ups and downs. There's some weeks where you feel like, holy shit, I'm a god. I've leveled up so much. And then there's other weeks where you're like, I am not getting any better. In fact, I feel like I'm getting worse. But you know that you just, you know, push through that. I guess for me, that's what keeps me going at any of these things. But uh, I always try to I always try to be objective with myself about what's working and what's not, you know, like with people that leave me shitty comments, even if they're being fucking assholes about it. Sometimes they're right. You know, sometimes they're saying something shitty and rude. That's still true. I think that actually Misha said this to me a really long time ago. Like, uh, when the first periphery record came out the same day as avalanche of worms and I emailed him to congratulate him 
on the release. And he said something to the extent of, uh, I hope I don't agree with the bad reviews, something along, <laughs> yeah, something you might. along those lines. They might be right. They might be right. Yeah, exactly. But getting back to songwriting, I want to talk about some of the fundamental principles that people should keep in mind that hold true regardless of genre, regardless of what your intent is. Uh, the one thing that we talked about, so we did a class together called Mastering Metal Songwriting, which is fucking awesome. Like I still with John Brown from Monuments and a bunch of other people, but I still like believe in that. I still think that's an amazing class. So anybody that wants to get better at songwriting, they have it on Creative Live. It's always on sale for like 15 bucks, as we've discussed. Or nine. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. But it's it's great. One of the ideas in there that really stood out to me that helped me a lot was the idea of tension and release. Can you talk about that and what it means in the context of songwriting? Yeah. So tension and release is, uh, I think it's the, the main thing that you have in music that keeps it from being an even unengaging experience. A lot like, uh, I don't know if elevator music is still a thing or not. Mm -hmm. The thing about elevator music that was so terrible was that it was kind of the same even, same even delivery, same even sound, and nothing is happening. And right. I actually think- Because it's just supposed to be background music. It's not supposed to be interesting. Yeah, exactly. But it, a song that you want people to care about, that's different. Much like a movie, you need some sort of conflict and maybe some sort of resolution to the conflict, or at least- some direction for that conflict to be going in. And I think that tension in music is a very, very similar thing. It's probably the same thing psychologically, like the way that we interpret conflict in a story is probably similar to how we uh, look at like tension in music. Um, and so there's many ways to create it. You can create it harmonically, you can create it dynamically, you can create it tempo wise. There's lots of different ways to do it, but I what would be think, a good example of it from a song like a, an artist, people like Metallica or something that people would know, like a really uh, good example of tension. Release. So, Master of Puppets in the verse, where the first I think it's the first two times through, he's on the low E string, down picking like a fucking maniac, yeah, and then uh, they go up to the A string, which is a same riff, which is a super common technique to shift the key. But uh, it, adds it, just, it adds tension. It just makes it feel like it stepped up. A like notch. in pop uh, songs, they'll go up a half step during like the second chorus or something. Yeah. Or the last chorus, like I forget what Beyonce song. It's like they'll, they go through like seven different key changes in the last chorus. Each one of them more and more tense than the last. It's a, it's a really, really great move. Um, Muse will do it in their harmonic structure where the way that they'll build verses or pre-choruses is that towards the end, they almost always do this towards the end of any awesome verse, the chords that they're outlining just get more and more and more tense up until the chorus, which is like a perfect resolution. And they'll build that into every aspect of their songs. Uh, so even within melodies that are within a stable sounding verse, uh, the tension will just be built in. You can study this. That's one of the good reasons to learn music theory. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I know very little, anything I learned, it learned is from you. And I felt like it was super helpful for me to learn just that small amount that I know was hugely helpful to me. 
but I know that you're also critical of people that, you know, learn too much. What is the right yeah. amount to know? I don't know what the right amount is, but um, the people that I'm critical of are the people who aren't using the music part. They're just using the theory part, right? kind of like a, like a math problem. Now, the thing is that like in those Muse songs or that Metallica song or any great song, you could do the math equation afterwards, but mm -hmm. the composer of the song was probably not doing an equation. They were probably just going by the way it felt. Anyways, two really good reasons to learn some theory. A, you want to communicate with other musicians on the planet and it's a common language and uh, fourth fret on the A string is super, super limited. Uh, yeah. If you want to do something beyond super bare bones music and actually get other people to interpret it or play it, you got to speak the same language. And that's kind of an accepted language. Another really good reason for it. And look, some people can do this without names for what they're hearing. So, you know, if you're that person, awesome. Uh, and there's plenty of great songwriters who know zero theory or great players like Mark Holcomb. He's a great player. No zero theory makes all kinds of complex chords and riffs in his parts. Doesn't need it. But uh, most people do need some way to name things that they're hearing. Like if they hear it in somebody else's song and they're, they think it's a really, really cool chordal thing that happened, or it's really, really cool the way that this pre-chorus led into the chorus, whatever it is, it's really cool to have some sort of way to understand it. Yeah. And note it. I, I wonder how many people, you know, there's lots of examples you could think of of so-and-so is a great songwriter that doesn't know any theory and thinks theory is stupid and blah, blah, blah. Even with those people, I wonder how many of them, if they do a little bit of theory, would be able to come up with these ideas a lot faster uh, or maybe even would be better. Like, it's almost like hunt and peck typing. It's like, yeah, you'll eventually type that book. But if you learned how to mm -hmm. to type properly, you'd type it five times faster and probably would be a lot more fun. Also, the thing that is left out of the story a lot of the times with those musicians is who are they working with who does know their theory inside True. and out? Like True. what producer or arranger or other band member who's not as famous is the one in that equation that does know the theory. Usually there's one. Or it's two helping or three. to kind of smooth yeah. out the rough spots and make things fit together and yeah. Facilitate the communication between people. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think Jordan from uh, Bring Me the Horizon is that person, for example, from what I understand anyway. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up and coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip podcast. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious podcast. 
But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Uh, so what would you recommend that somebody learn? Like if they're like, okay, you're right. I probably should learn a little bit of theory. How much, what specific things would you suggest that they learn? Not so much that they're basing their writing on it to where they feel like, well, I can't use that note. That's not in okay, the scale. Yeah. When you're doing that, you've gone too far, I think. But uh, I think to the amount where it helps you actually understand what's going on, whatever that is, it's going to be different for everybody. So there's some people that can, you know, get like a PhD level knowledge of theory and write amazing stuff too, like lots okay. of sound soundtrack composers. I'll give you a really basic example that for me was helpful when I was making some pop punk song years ago. Uh, there was one part of the song where I was like, oh, I feel like this song should be a little bit busier because the part before it was simple. Before, maybe I would have thought I should just write a whole new part. But instead, I just arpeggiated the same part from before. So now it felt mm -hmm. busier, you know, felt like there was more going on, but I didn't add unnecessary complexity to the song with a whole new part. No need. That's also arrangement. Uh being really good at arrangement. I mean, it goes hand in hand. But I just, uh, I had a tool. I was like, yeah. oh, I, there's, you can, arpe there's a thing called arpeggiation yep. and I can just use that. that. I mean, that's exactly what it is, is a tool. Okay. So this is the subjective part, right? Is how much is the right amount? It's hard to say, but is it giving you that? Like, even if all you know is like this one tool of arpeggiating chords, but it helps you write a better song, then that's great. But uh, I feel like if you're the person who's entering that formulaically because they don't know what the hell to do, that's probably not good. But so if you're in a rock band, you probably don't need to be able to sit in on a session and they just tell you, oh, it's in this key and, you know, here are the changes. You probably don't need to be able to do that like some jazz player. But you'd you be amazed. You'd be amazed by how many people in big rock bands. Like I said, there's usually the one or the two That's true. people. That's true. You'd be amazed by who knows their shit. That's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I'm about, constantly surprised by it. I think about some of the people that I know who are, you know, the better musicians and, and even like what you might think of as like a basic punk band. There are people like that. Yeah, they uh, it's just there's just this thing in heavy music. I don't think it's so much anymore, but there is this culture of pretending you're dumb <laughs> that yeah. was popular for a while. Uh, and so I think lots of, uh, dedicated, smart musicians just didn't advertise it. That kind yeah. of just got baked into the culture, but I feel like they've always kind of been there. It's just strange that people are so resistant. Well, and it's not strange because it's work because learning theory is boring and dry and it's not as fun as sitting down and playing your favorite riff. So I understand why people don't want to learn it, but uh, you know, in any creative field, I would encourage people to get good at the fundamentals, whatever they are in your field. And I think people who run away from that are just holding themselves back. That's my personal opinion. The thing is, uh, the people who I know who are good at it don't think it's boring. Well, so that's true too. Yeah. Like it's, so we get this question a lot, uh, like how do I get motivated to practice or something? You know, that type of thing. Right. How do I get motivated to work on my mixing? It's like, well, well I guess you think Will Putney do has to don't. get motivated? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I talked to John. mix, then don't mix. Exactly. Petrucci was talking about this on the podcast that we did with him. We brought that up and he was like, I've never needed to be motivated to play guitar. Why would I need to be motivated right. to play guitar? It's like, of course, John Petrucci doesn't need to be motivated to play guitar. Right. I think the theory thing is really, really similar. People that I've known that are really good at it, they do it because they want to understand how shit yeah. works. Yeah. Like, you know, John Brown is a good example of that he understands, he knows at least to me, a pretty good amount of theory. He does. Uh, and he's not the kind of guy that, uh, yeah, I mean, that's if, if he's going to go down a rabbit hole, he's going to go all the way down that rabbit hole. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to force him to do anything that he's not interested in. So, you know, that's, I think, a great example of it. That's a very good example. He doesn't advertise it either, but he knows right. his shit. Yeah, he does. People that are under the age of 18 should take the, take the advantage time-wise that they've got and study, study that shit. Most of the people, another thing that uh, these great musicians tend to have in common, and not saying that, you know, if you're over 18 or, over 35 or anything like that, that it's too late. But I'd say the majority of the ones that I've met, they got all that time in generally while they were in high school. Right. Uh, and then by the time they were adults, they were past it. So we know them as adults where they weren't learning theory anymore. Sure. They weren't really practicing. Well, they were practicing, but they weren't like approaching it like an intermediate or beginner right. player. Like it's already who they were, they're already fully formed. And so I, I think that among the professional musicians, it might get talked about a little less, but if you right. just go back 10 years, they were probably all about it. Geeking out on it. That's probably Geeking true. out for years and years and years. On the other hand, so the, the flip side of that is that there's also a thing in metal where people kind of fetishize this stuff in a way that makes no sense to me. Like the way people like gent people, just sort of arbitrarily get fast fixated on things like polyrhythms. It's like, well, putting polyrhythms in a song is not going to necessarily make it a better song. No. Like just cause the thing is 
somewhat advanced doesn't mean it's going to add to the song. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like uh, sweet picking or something, something along those lines that is flashy and can sound cool, but is like a really like entry level thing that people that don't really yeah. have much musical taste gravitate towards. Yeah. But then you hear someone amazing use it like Meshuggah and their polyrhythms. It's like, oh, this is what everyone's talking about. But you, you see why I love Ale yeah. because he's not afraid to say snobby things like that. That they have, like, he's not afraid to say that they have no taste. I'm not afraid to say it either, because I think I, that's exactly it's not their right. Fault. No, it's not their fault. But I, I think that's exactly what it is. Is that a lot of times people, and I mean, I'm sure that I have done it and probably continue to do it too. Like, anytime someone is new to a thing, they latch on to something that to them seems really cool and fancy and sophisticated, but to people that have actually been around for a while, it's like, oh yeah, I remember 15 years ago when I was really excited about that thing too. And to me, the the lesson is like, look to the people who are where you want to be. This is this jujitsu is the same thing. Like blue belts go through this phase where they get fascinated with all this like obscure, weird techniques that black belts never use. Um, look to the people who have achieved the things you want to achieve. And if if they sort of roll their eyes at this thing that you're currently fixated on, that's something to consider. Yeah, it's something to consider, but at the same time, they might uh, be maybe they're missing. It. On the other hand, like yeah. I said, they might be missing the potential of this thing. Yeah, I don't want to discourage people from trying to get better because yeah. most people that are great went through that time period, but then they just got past it. So, right. uh, I think you got to earn your snobbiness to a degree. <laughs> this is true too. Yeah, uh, Meshuggah uh, and their polyrhythms, uh, they're so good at that stuff because they went through being bad at it. Like, right. if you listen to their super early stuff, they weren't that great at it. So, they're still better than 90% of bands will ever be, but yes. Yeah, but they didn't really become them themselves for, for a while. Right. So I don't want to discourage people from trying to get better but uh taste taste isn't something that i think you're born with i think it, you definitely have to develop it it's probably kind of an inevitable part of getting good at any kind of creative field as you go through that baroque phase where you know you get i mean i mean baroque um in the figurative sense not the genre of classical music mm -hmm. the baroque phase where you get into like you know flourishy fancy ornamentational sort of stuff uh, you know, that your teachers all roll their eyes at you and tell you that that stuff's bullshit and you shouldn't care about it. But you're like, fuck you. It looks cool. Or fuck you. It sounds cool. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I remember when I first started to figure out how to play fast, um, and it was new, it was new and it was cool sounding. And I was really impressed with myself. And, uh, I remember again, my dad, didn't give two shits. You thought it was like, it didn't even fucking matter. And now I see people play fast and uh, I do think it can be cool, mm -hmm. but I also think it doesn't fucking matter. But if they didn't think it was cool at some point and didn't get excited by it, they probably wouldn't have stuck it out to get that great. It's really, really tough because I don't want to discourage people. Well, playing fast is one of those things where if you want to hang your hat on that, you got to play really, 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 really fucking fast. You know, you got to be like yeah. Archspire or 
you know, Jason Richardson or something where you play that shit for literally anybody and they're going to go, holy fuck, that is fast. Yeah, but see, those Ark Spire and Jason Richardson have this this thing where they're actually playing good music. That that's true too. That's yeah, yes. But I mean, not just fast going back to that shrapnel record stuff from the eighties. I don't think that stuff was good music for the most part. No, most of it wasn't, but just the fact that it was that fast and, um, you know, had that neoclassical shred kind of sound that was different was at least interesting at the time. Just, you know, I would consider that like experimental music. Did it hold up? In hindsight, kind of, sort of, not really. Elements it, of it. Ele- yeah, exactly. But it was still cool. It was like a step on the journey to progressive metal as we think of it now. Yeah. And also, uh, there, I don't think that people before that understood how good you could get yep. at the instrument, like what the virtuosic capability was. Yeah. They um, redefined the envelope yeah. of how fast you could play, just like you know, Ark Spire and Jason did years later. Yeah. Which is valuable. I think Mm -hmm. it's, it might not be like uh, the most compositionally valid thing, uh, but you know, someone's got to define. Well, Meshuggah redefined how tight you could play. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds really cool when you're in the mood for it. I do think that you need those people, right. Who are going to define what the technical limits Mm -hmm. are always. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's some people that that's their calling. Like they're not, they're not about writing good songs. Like they might not even have it in them, but they have this insane physical ability that just needs to be expressed and they help the rest of us. Yeah, which I think goes back to kind of what you're talking about before, knowing your role in a band or on a creative team. Uh, Are you the virtuoso shredder? Are you the arranger? Are you Mm -hmm. the writer? These are not usually the same person, and they all have value. Like, the project won't turn out as well as it could without each of those people on the team. And, And so I think it's important to know who you are uh, and respect what everyone else brings to the table, uh, knowing that none of us are more important than the other. We just each have our role to play. Yeah. I mean, it's a really classic team up, right? The person that's much better at writing versus the person that's much better at playing. But, uh, you know, the person that's much better at playing needs the person that's good at writing's material so that they have a platform to shine on. And then the person that's better at writing needs that really good player so that their material can sound good. And that's again, the ego kind of the, the, the push and pull of ego is like understanding when to defer to that other person. And then, and then also understanding when to go, no, fuck you. This is how it should be. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Ego does get in the way. One of the things that uh, lots of the people that I've spoken to who uh, wish they were better at something else, like these insane shredders that mm-hmm. wish they were better songwriters or vice versa. When you ask them what they spend their time on, it's like, it's no, it's no surprise that you're good at the thing you're good right. at and not good at the thing that you're not good at. And uh, usually 
the, in the partnerships where people know who they are that like, I love writing. I'll spend eight hours a day on it, maybe an hour a day on technique. That's cool. Like when there's those people or, you know, the other person who's like, I just want to be an Olympic athlete on the instrument and I might write three songs a year, but, uh, this person writes great shit. Uh, when those people have that self understanding, self-awareness and work together, those tend to be the best partnerships. What would you say to somebody who is a, you know, we'll call it a, a one person band, a solo, like a lot of people, it's like the solo musician, songwriter, producer, publisher, marketer kind of template of how people are now. What would you suggest to that person as far as working on their strengths versus shoring up weaknesses? I think you could find really good arguments for both. It depends who you're listening to that day for which is the better idea. Like, you know, you can listen to Gary Vee at some point and hear about only focusing on your, on your strengths. And then you'll hear Jocko talking about, a you know, quirk on defense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and who's right. They're both great. Right. And I think it's the same thing with, uh, with musicians. I think that, the great musicians have identified what their strengths are and leaned into those strengths, but they don't let their weaknesses uh, cripple them, cripple them. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. much it. So like get your weakness to the point where it's not holding you back and then build on top of that. Yeah, it's something Wes Hawk said in the Q&A we did with him the other day that's super relevant is there's not enough hours in your lifetime to address all of your weaknesses. Like even if you live out a full, healthy, natural life, you're still going to maybe only get to 3% of them. And you're always going to feel like there's something left to do. So you should be selective about which one of those weaknesses you decide to focus on. And it should be uh, in line with what your goal is. Right. Yeah. It's uh, you know, in either way, as long as you're working on something, that's probably time well spent. Probably. Hopefully. Yeah. Another thing in regards to practice that uh, I was talking about with Dean from Arcspire, we were talking about the idea of like the importance of deliberate focused practice and not just sitting in your room and noodling and playing mm -hmm. your favorite riffs and thinking that that's, that's practice. But he brought up a really good point of like, yes, but also you have to enjoy this. So it's okay to let yourself noodle sometimes. Yeah as sort of a way to bring the fun back to it to, if you're feeling frustrated, can you talk about that balance? And again, kind of uh, if you think about that as the balance between like healthy food and junk food, the balance of doing stuff that's fun on your instrument versus like practicing in a way that's not always fun. Well, in a purely practical sense, uh, if anyone who's written songs knows that the moment that you formally try to sit down and write a song is the moment you're out of good ideas. And then when you're not trying to do it is when the good ideas happen. And, uh, and so just as part of being better, you kind of need to address both of those things. Like you're not going to get better at your instrument when you're just sitting there fucking around. Uh, that's not when that happens. Uh, much like, uh, when, uh, I think that's similar to working out, like you're not yeah. going to get stronger when you're sitting there working out, um, right. going to get stronger in, 
when you're not working out. Uh, it's a similar, it's a similar sort of thing. You're not going to get better at guitar when you're sitting there fucking around. That's probably when you're going to come up with really good ideas, but you're probably not going to come up with the really good ideas when you're doing the formal practice. However, a well-rounded musician needs to do both. So it's important, I think, to build both in somehow time-wise and be cool with it. Would you say that that's true for producers as well? Like what's the equivalent for them? Yeah. If they don't build that in somehow, you'll end up with those mixers that just, they hit this level and then just maintain forever, Right. which, you know, it's fine if you're awesome, but uh, even if you're really, really awesome, the public's going to move on eventually from your sound. So right. And your clients and everyone else. Mm-hmm. And you just, you sort of like, oh man, that guy used to be good. Yeah. And he's probably still good for that time period. Right. So, yeah. So you need to keep redefining your boundaries, I think is a mixer. Uh, it's, it's a time management thing though, because uh, you can't experiment so much that you're not going to get work done. So I think that the best mixers, the best producers have figured out for them how to build that in, whether it's during a session, like they just have this mental clock for how long they can spend on just playing out an idea or it's after the session. Some people I know, like we'll spend 15 minutes trying to learn a new technique after sessions, just as a discipline thing. It doesn't really matter. It's different for everybody, but the fact is the good ones are still doing that. Yeah, just like the guitarist who shall not be named going back to the hotel and practicing for two hours after you filmed with them for eight hours. Yeah, and I'm sure that during those uh, hours, it wasn't scales to a metronome 100% of the time. I'm sure that some of it was just fucking around, watching TV, playing guitar, but that's okay. And that is exactly why I thought I was so much better at guitar than I actually was, because that was my idea of practice. It's like watching TV and just like <laughs> playing riffs. And I was like, I play guitar all the time. I practice a lot. Like, I'm pretty good. I don't know a single guitar player who doesn't do that yeah. at some point. That's the thing. They also do all the discipline practice. But if you though. ask me to play a major yeah. scale, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could do it, but not that Fuck well. Major. Yeah. <laughs> who needs major anyways? That's the only one I know, so... <laughs> I don't know how it relates to fighting or whatever, but I'm sure there's got to be some room for thinking on your feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing as like drilling versus rolling. Like if all you do is roll, you're going to get better at what you already know at kind of, you know, implementing your A game, but you're not going to learn new shit. And if all you do is drill, then you're going to learn a bunch of, you know, you're going to be shallow, but wide. You'll learn a bunch of shit, but you won't actually be able to apply it on a resisting opponent. So you got to do both. I'm sure that the drilling part, the best, the best fighters probably find a way to work that into their schedule, whether it's on their own or whenever the fuck it is, they do it. Yep. Yep. You got to do both. It's the same thing, just like anything else. And, you know, whichever part you think is fun, that's cool, but you got to make sure that, you know, some people like drilling more than rolling and vice versa, but you, you know, whatever the, whatever the fun part is of the thing that you're working on, that's cool, but you can't do that. You know, you can't let that be the only thing you do or else you'll end up like me, a delusional fool who dramatically overestimates their own ability. Well, what's your goal, though? Right. To be like, a mediocre slam guitarist. If and that's I achieved your goal. that goal. 
I mean, no, for real though, if your goal is to be like the best True. in the world, then you got to do what the best in the world do. But if, if that's not what you're after, that's cool too. Yeah. You don't need to worry about all that shit or right. at least not as much of that shit. Right. Yeah. That's a good point too. It's like, you know, sometimes people ask me or anyone else, like, well, you know, here's, here's the way I do things. Is that okay? And the first question I would always ask is like, well, are you happy with where you're at? Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you want to be the next John Petrucci on guitar? Some people do. Yeah. I don't think that Jason Richardson ever was divided within himself about trying to become the best guitarist on earth. Right. I'm sure that it was always that, but not everybody cares about that. Or right. some people think they care about that, but they don't actually care about that. And I think if that's not who you are, it's good to know that too. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one, which you've talked about quite a bit. And, and I, I am a believer in as well as like making sure that your actions are aligned with your ambitions. You know, if you're saying you want to be the best in the world, are you, are you acting like it? And if you're not, what do you do about that? Maybe the answer is admitting to yourself, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with not being the best in the world because, you know, John Petrucci naturally practices eight hours a day or whatever it is. I have to force myself to practice 90 minutes a day. How do I reconcile these things? Get over yourself, basically. Yeah, Somehow. one way or the other. Yeah. One way or the other, you know, either suck it up and practice more or maybe being a virtual guitar, virtuoso guitarist is not your calling. Which is fine. Yeah. And people think that this is harsh. You know, I guess both of us are kind of blunt about the way that we say these, these things to people. And maybe it comes off as harsh sometimes, but it's not harsh. It's just like, it's just coming to terms with reality one way or the other. I think it's liberating. Not yeah, harsh. exactly. Instead of being trapped in this uh, scenario where you feel forced to do, you know, you, you uh, you're, you're pulled in one direction with your, your mind, but your body is doing another thing. It's like, you can't be pulling yourself in two different directions. You're going to be miserable. Yeah. It's important to not use that as a cop out though, which I think some people do. They sell themselves yeah. short, but you're not going to become the best in the world at something. If you don't actually want to become the exactly. best in the world. Like because, if, yeah. if, if you have to drag yourself kicking and screaming into the gym or into practice or whatever it is like it's that's okay like most people are not most people don't enjoy doing scales four hours a day like that's okay no i don't think they do if they have to fight themselves to do it they're sure as hell not showing anybody right that they're fighting themselves to do that, it. well that's what i'm saying if if, yeah. if if there are people out there who like that is really legitimately what they want to do there's people i mean i have trained with jujitsu people that will just fucking Drill one thing for two hours, you know, that's, I, I find that boring and that's the reason why they're better than me. And that's okay. Like just, you know, knowing who you are is the important part. I remember reading an interview with the edge from you two. What is his real name, by the way? I have no idea. Cause that's what I'm going to call him. Like Brian. Like, is it <laughs> cool if I call it's you probably, Brian? It's probably Brian. Yeah. Can I, can I call you Brian? Is that all right? <laughs> Nobody knows his name. He was talking about how there's this intro to some song that they were playing on whatever stadium tour they were on. And he was having trouble with that. So every day before sound check, you get up on stage for two hours exactly and practice the same two chord intro, Fuck. which it, yeah, it's not virtuosic material, Yeah, but still hard to do anything well. And uh, I, I think he 
probably understood that he's not going to be the greatest guitar player on earth, but probably decided that he wanted to be the greatest guitar player playing that part at that time. Yeah. Just focused on that. Yeah. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast.